This week on Chefs Without Restaurants, I have the one and only Carla Hall. We talk about her top chef experience, only doing the things she actually wants to do, and it's even going to be a mini masterclass in biscuit making. You're going to want to stick around for this whole episode. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Chefs Without Restaurants. I'm your host, Chris Spear. This is the program where I speak with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry working outside of a traditional restaurant setting. Today we have Chef Carla Hall. I've really been excited to release this episode. We actually spoke this summer, so if you hear a couple things in the show that allude to the fact that maybe it was summertime, it was. If you know of Carla, and I'm sure most of you do, you probably know her from her two seasons that she was on Top Chef. She was also the co-host of the show The Chew for a number of years. Of course, we start this program talking about her Top Chef experience and why she actually chose to go back and do All-Stars, even though she didn't initially want to do it. And I think something a lot of us can relate to is feeling the pressure to do things maybe we don't want to do, whether it's getting talked into doing an event or maybe starting a podcast, though that's not me. But a lot of people will tell you things you should be doing for your business. And Carla talks about not doing that and only doing what she wants to do. So we're going to spend a little time there. And to my surprise and delight, it's going to be kind of a mini masterclass in biscuit making. Carla's most definitely known for her biscuits. And we somehow got on that topic and she's going to talk about what makes a good biscuit, what makes a bad biscuit, some pointers. And that was really awesome for me because I don't think I make great biscuits at all. So I I haven't tried making them yet. I don't know why, but uh, something I'm going to get into hopefully in the next couple of weeks. We're also going to touch on her making the jump to food media, licensing her recipes, doing a chef in residence series at a restaurant in Chicago. And I also asked her what flavor she'd be if she had to identify as a flavor. So stick around for that. And as always, this show is possible because of the support of my sponsors. I've recently put all that info in one place. If you go to chefswithoutrestaurants.com forward slash sponsors, you can find all the people that I'm working with. Of course, there's our annual sponsor, the United States Personal Chef Association, and our newer sponsor, Mies. And you can also find our affiliate partners like Macienda, Tiny Fish Co., Truff, and Tillet. What that means is when you buy products through my links, I actually get a little bit of money, and that's going to help keep the podcast and the community going. These are brands I've used, I love. In fact, a couple companies like Macienda and Tiny Fish Co. have had their founders on the show. So again, that website is chefswithoutrestaurants.com forward slash sponsors. So today's episode with Carla Hall will be coming up right after word from this week's sponsors. Over the past 30 years, the world of the personal chef has grown in importance to fulfill those dining needs. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, it allowed personal chefs to close that dining gap. Central to all of that is the United States Personal Chef Association. Representing nearly 1,000 chefs around the U.S. and Canada, USPCA provides a strategic backbone to those chefs that includes liability insurance, training, communications, certification, and more. It's a reassurance to consumers that the chef coming into their home is prepared to offer them an experience with their meal. 
USPCA provides training to become a personal chef through our preparatory membership. Looking to showcase your products or services to our chefs and their clients? Partnership opportunities are available. Call Angela today at 1-800-995-2138, extension 705, or email her at A-P-R-A-T-H-E-R at USPCA.com for membership and partner info. Are you still keeping your recipes in docs? Doing your costing in spreadsheets? Well, you should try Mies, the recipe tool designed for chefs by chefs. Founded by professional chef Josh Sharkey, Mies transforms your recipe content into a powerful digital format that lets you organize, scale, train, and cost like never before. See why Mies is loved by over 12,000 culinary professionals. Sign up for a free account today at getmies.com forward slash CWR. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash C-W-R. And on a personal note, I've been using Mies almost daily. I wish I had this tool years ago. The ability to quickly scale a recipe up or down, or to search across all recipes for a single ingredient like pumpkin. And if you really want to get an in-depth breakdown, I had Mies founder Josh Sharkey on the podcast a few months ago. That was episode 155, released in July of 2020. So go check it out to find out what Mies is all about. Hey, good morning, Carla. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have you here today. Good morning. You're one of my favorite people to watch uh, on TV. You have such a bubbly personality. I'm sure you hear this in like every interview and every time someone talks to you, but just you're, the way you carry yourself. And you're so much fun to watch, you know, watching you on Top Chef that first season. Uh, you didn't such- see me stressing? <laughs> I saw you stressing, but you know, those were still the early days of Top Chef. You know, the first season was very dramatic, I think, you know, where they were going more for like the reality TV aspect as much as the cooking. And by your season, I found like they, I felt like they kind of found their path and they really started to focus more on like having chefs on there and and making it more of a chef driven show. I think the thing is, well, one, I was older. So I was 44 when I did Top Chef the first time season five, but also because I'm a career changer, I tend to do things that I want to do. You're never going to see me doing something that I don't want to do. I think that's so important, especially today, you know, and we might touch on this later in the show, but now as chefs, there's all these things and so much of it comes around like social media and marketing and what you should be doing, right? Like you Mm -hmm. should be on Instagram posting three times a day. You should be out, you know, doing this event. You should go cook at this trade show for exposure. So you're saying like, if you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. Correct. I don't do it. I love that. Um, I mean, a lot of times I don't really live by other people's shoulds because it creates some resentment. (laughs) It creates, um, and I'm the one who's out there and it's not fair to your fans who think that they're going to get the same Carla that they've seen when in fact I really don't want to be there. So um, I just nip it in the bud in the beginning. I just don't do it. And Time is so valuable. I mean, I feel like every day I'm kind of like drowning a little bit trying to keep up on the stuff that I just really want to do. Like, how Mm -hmm. do you throw more on top of that? It's just, it's not sustainable. And that's just it. It's not sustainable. And and I think um, if you were to ask me what I feel is success, it is getting to choose the things that I want to do. And in that it's not just work, it's family, it's quality of time, you know, just being at home with my husband, it's vacation, 
it's not being on that treadmill that other people are running. I mean, you're lit- they're the speed button and you are running trying to keep up with the things that they're telling you to do. And I think in hindsight, most people would tell you that it doesn't matter or it doesn't work, right? Like how many times have you followed the path? Uh, I mean, not you because it sounds like you don't, but you know, like myself, you kind of start following this path and then you start to see it doesn't work for people and and they come out and say like, oh, wow, I wish I hadn't have done that. And you think, oh, uh, now I'm kind of disappointed that I did the same thing because um, it, it just shows that it's not really the right fit. But I did it. I, I mean, I used to do that, but the, I think people forget that I'm older. <laughs> I mean, I'm 58. So, and Over with the that hill. comes... Throwing the towel. <laughs> but, you know, with that does come wisdom. And I was 44 when I was on Top Chef. I had already, I already had a business. I didn't go on to promote my business. I went on as a personal challenge. So that in itself gave me freedom that other people... I don't think took advantage of because they're like, I have to do this to promote my business. I have to do this to look good. I have to do this for ego. I didn't really do it for that. So you didn't come out hoping to leverage it into a book deal or or getting a restaurant open or any of that. It was just Uh -uh. for you because you wanted to prove to yourself that you could do it. Exactly. None of that. Now, the second time I did it on All Stars, the production company came back and asked me several times, oh, you know, will you do all stars? And I was like, no, I don't want to do it. Um, they came back three times. My PR company, the, the, the PR company that I was working with said, don't do it because you've worked really hard to maintain your own brand separate from the Top Chef brand. And the only reason I said yes was because I remember Spike Mendelson going on and saying, I'm doing this for a particular reason. And I hated catering. I was catering at the time. I'm like, I'm going to go on so I can tell people I don't cater anymore. I mean, that's literally (laughs) why I did it. And then I was like, okay, so what's going to be my thing? And I said, I think I will do cookies. It it was a knee-jerk reaction, but my prime sort of intention was to go on and say, I don't cater anymore. I'm a recovered caterer you know, or recovering active at the time. (laughs) Why did you hate catering? I loved catering in that, you know, you get to shop because you get to shop for stuff, you know, (laughs) you get to shop for tablescapes. Um, Also, I love the interaction with the client and going to do different things in different places. But the fact is you are a food mover. You move that food four times to the event from the event, you know, into the van, out of the van, you know, twice. And I think that what I didn't realize when I did Top Chef the first time, everybody is clamoring to come to your business. If you, if I had a restaurant, I would have had help. I would have had infrastructure to sort of shield me between the customers and the fans and me. So I would have had help to execute you know, the business. I didn't have that in catering. It was my business. And I ran out to get a partner. I'm like, what do I do? I have all these people, right? So it was overwhelming to the nth degree. And I said, I have to, I, I, I can't do this. And it sort of ruined my joy of it. <laughs> and on the one hand, I love Top Chef. I loved what it's given me. But in that moment, I hated it because I felt like 
I was thrown into this. It was almost like the Oprah Winfrey effect and I couldn't handle it. And it was stressful and overwhelming and I wanted to get out. Which is something you hear a couple of times, you know, from other businesses. I've seen articles, you know, um, a magazine will come to this restaurant kind of in the middle of nowhere. And from the outside, you think that's the dream. Like, yes, this kind of side of the road place was discovered, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But now they've got thousands of people showing up and, you know, the restaurant can't handle it. And then there's a bad experience. And now everyone's saying, this place is terrible. I waited three hours in line for a burger. It's like, well, the people didn't necessarily ask for that. It just is how it worked out. So it's interesting to hear that that was your response, because I think most people would go on a show like Top Chef hoping to come out and capitalize on it and grow their business exponentially. Well, yeah, but if you have a restaurant, you have general managers, you have wait staff, you, you already have the infrastructure and the employees um, nine times out of 10 to at least handle more, more than a single individual can handle. You know, um, I had some cooks, but I was running, I pretty much was running everything and cooking. And I, I mean, I had cooks working with me, but nobody was managing it with me. That's a lot. I mean, I work as a personal chef. I don't do huge events, but still I'm like a one man show. So mm -hmm. all that cooking, prepping, shopping, cleaning, schlepping. Uh, yeah. Right? I mean, I, people, people look at me, customers say to me, how many events do you do a week? And sometimes I say like one or two and they kind of look at me like it's not a real full-time job. It's like, I've spent three days doing your wedding for even though it's only 25 people and it's a small event. It took mm -hmm. me three days to do this one event. Like I did three events last week and I was exhausted and stressed and felt like I could barely handle it. And I was just doing three dinners. That's see. And even doing the proposal, that's part of the work to come up with what you're going to do to submit that. And then and then you have to get paid. So then you have to do the invoicing. There's so much more than just the event itself. It's never a four hour job. It is a week. One job is a week. So when you have a lot of jobs, you know, that week, you know, so multiply all of those other activities and you have stress. <laughs> I think it just gets hard because so many of us love cooking and then you ultimately don't end up cooking or right. if you're cooking, you're not enjoying it. Like I got into cooking because I enjoyed making food. And then as you move up through the ranks of someone else's business, you know, I've said a number of times, I'm like an HR manager, you're hiring and firing and evals and board meetings and stuff. So it's like, mm -hmm. well, I got to get out of that. I'm going to start a personal chef business so I can cook again. Right. Right. But then you're back on that same hamster wheel. It's a different, you know, a different boss. I'm my own boss, but I still have to do invoicing, shopping, emailing, all that stuff. It's like, where is the business where I can just go cook? I mean, I guess I could just go cook somewhere, but you know, that's not actually what I want to do either, right? But that's what makes you a good employee. Once you've worked for yourself and you're working for someone else, you can anticipate what to do. You're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm just responsible for me. And it really makes you a good employee. But when you have your own business, you have to be planning something, doing something and getting paid for something. And once that wheel stops, you know, you're in trouble. So when I did Top Chef and nobody was there getting the business, I had to come back and start getting business all over again. I hadn't even thought about that, uh, you know, because most of the chefs, I guess, who go on there have a restaurant or right. many of them have a restaurant and they've mm -hmm. got a team that's kind of holding it down. Sometimes you don't even know, you know, I'm in Frederick, you've got Brian Voltaggio here and he goes off and shoots a season of Top Chef and it's like, we don't even know in the city, right? Like the restaurant's still open. You can still dine there. Nobody notices that he's not there cooking. But right. with a catering business, uh, there's no income, no one doing anything. Exactly. 
what were you doing kind of between seasons of Top Chef? Like when you said, I wanted to let people know I wasn't catering, what were you doing at that point? Um, so, I mean, I was still catering. Um, I had started, and I remember my last catering job when I had retired myself and an old client came back and said, oh, I'm getting married. Uh, will you do our wedding? I'm like, I real, I don't cater anymore. But what would it take for you to do it? I, I was like, okay, it can't be more than 50 people. It has, I mean, I literally had a whole list for their wedding, the, the, <laughs> the, how I would do their wedding. And so it was the last thing that I had done. And then I started, at the time, I was starting to do more brand work. I was starting to um, do guest appearances on shows and things like that. And mind you, I was still looking for opportunities within food. And then, you know, I had a manager. So, you know, she was pushing more food television. I And, and really, in hindsight, I wasn't ready for it, but I feel like a manager or an agent always pushes their client. Unfortunately, the client doesn't know that they are not ready. I get a lot of people who ask me about, hey, how do I get on television? Da, 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 da. And it, it's, it's a double-edged sword or it's a catch-22 because you need experience to do well, but you can't get on without the experience. And so I tell people, I did a lot of um, public television. So I would just go on for free. That's a great training ground. But I was doing a lot of things like that. Lots of little things all the time. Now, is that something you wanted to do? Like, did you have aspirations before, let's say before Top Chef, like when you were catering, did you know that you wanted to do TV appearances or, you know, now you've got podcast, co-host of a TV show. Was that something that you always were interested in doing? I didn't think about doing it when I was catering because I didn't have time to think about anybody, anything else or anybody, I guess. But a lot of people didn't realize that I wanted to do theater. So for me, I loved teaching cooking classes. So I did a lot of that as well. I taught a lot of classes at Sur La Table and some private um, cooking schools. I love that. But for me, it's a bit of theater. You know, you're teaching, you're performing for the students, getting them excited and, um, and sort of engaged in what you're teaching them. Um, so in a way, I, I did want to do that. But I, I didn't really think think about it in that way. And it, it took somebody else to see me doing cooking classes to say, hey, I think you'd be really good. Let's pursue this. And a lot of people, I mean, these days, food media, whether it be traditional influencer brand deals, like that's a big thing now. And so many people mm -hmm. are starting out very young with almost no culinary experience. Like they jump right from cooking in their home kitchen to doing that. And some have been able to do that. Um, where in that process do you see getting representation, like an agent and someone to work with you? Because now it seems like a lot of people are starting very early on. Um, everybody looks at numbers. Everybody looks at social media numbers. Even um, Food Network looks at social media numbers. The agencies look at social media numbers. Brands look at social media numbers. And basically, they they want to know that they're not wasting their time. So... In the back in the day, you know, it was almost like somebody would discover you and see your talent and bring you in. Whereas now there's so many people doing it 
the thing that weeds out all the little guys are the people with the numbers, the social media numbers. And so they sort of start there. And if you are a little guy, you have to break, you have to be so special that you have to break through all of those other people. If you don't have the numbers to somehow wow somebody. Which is hard. I mean, the benefit of the time we're living in now is there isn't really a gatekeeper, right? Like Mm -hmm. content is king, but now we also have the weird algorithms. So, you know, there are people out there doing a great job, doing awesome things, grinding it out. And for whatever reason, they haven't hit. And it's, you know, sometimes frustrating. You could be a, a longtime culinarian and look at what's out there and what's, you know, quote unquote popular and think like, man, how did that 16 year old get this brand deal when I've been cooking for, you know, 30 years? And I'm not just talking about myself. I'm very comfortable with where I'm at with things. But, you know, I think a lot of my listeners definitely are interested in in kind of breaking into that aspect of food. Yeah. I, and I, I hate to say this, but, um, I truly believe when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Also your path is your path. And one of the things that I've always checked was, am I doing this for television or do I love it? Are you doing it to get followers or do you love the thing that you're doing? So uh, it's as simple as when you're making a dish for someone and are you doing it for the love of cooking for that person or are you doing it for the compliments? If you're doing it for the compliments, then there's a missing piece. You have to do it because you love, you know, the act of doing it for yourself And uh, I mean, granted, you do want compliments, but I also think that there's a, there's a sense of, I I recently did, um, actually it's still going on in Chicago for Esquire by Cooper's Hawk. So I licensed, um, did a, a menu for a chef series and people have an idea of what my food tastes like. It's almost nerve wracking or a little scary to relinquish that power and have other people cook your food because people are going to be having my recipes cooked by someone else. You know, it's hard. And and I'm like, I'm okay with people not liking my food, but I want them to not like the food that I would have made, not dislike the food that somebody else made in my name. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's what I mean, you get into in most restaurants these days anyway, you know, you go to whatever restaurant because you're a fan of the chef. Mm -hmm. And, you know, half the time, at least the chef might not even be there. Or if he's there, he's not even the one cooking it, right? That's what happens in a restaurant. I wanted to talk about this experience. It was on my list of things to kind of bring up with you, because I think this is an interesting thing I'm seeing more of is this chef series. I think you're the third chef I've had on this year who's doing one of these type things. Is this something you think we're going to see more of in the future, these uh, kind of curated chefs series that are popping up at places? And, I and think so. I guess why now? I think so. One, um, who wants to have a restaurant? It's like it's like you want a child, but you babysit, and that's great. You get to give the child back at the end of the night. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> so it's probably a step away from a food truck, you know, less um, responsibility, no overhead, I mean, it's all upside. Um, And so, yeah, I I mean, and I've done them before. I've been asked before. I've been burned before where I went in to taste the food. And I'm like, oh, well, whose food am I tasting? Uh, Because you do it for events. 
you know, speaking engagements and, you know, they're doing your menu as a one night and you have the food and you're like, ah, and usually those times you never have an opportunity to really taste the food before you go. So it really depends on the partner. Cooper's Hawk was an amazing partner for me. And um, for a month, I worked on sending uh, recipes to the chef, going back and forth. And then I went in a week out and I tasted everything. We got to tweak. I went there the launch week, still tweaked. And I talked to the cooks, not just the chef, but I wanted the cooks to understand who I am. I talked to the wait staff so that they could understand who I am. So they understood the story behind the food. And I think so often we are so enamored with the dish that we don't understand the story behind the dish. And so when you understand the story, then they can share that story and that becomes part of the experience. So they may not get everything that I'm talking about with that plate of food. But when you share that story with the diners, they're like, oh, okay, I get it. It becomes part of the whole pie and the picture. I think that's one of the things I've always tried to do in my cooking is, can you give the customer almost like a reference point so then it makes sense, right? And and that's hard if you don't know them. And one of my examples is, like, I grew up in New England and I baked beans as something that was part of my culinary tradition. And then I come down to kind of the mid-Atlantic where people have maybe just had, like, canned baked beans. But, like, how do I present that as a dish to customers who are not just like, well, I can buy, like, an 89-cent can of Bush's baked beans. Like, what's the big deal here? But, you know, this is a recipe that came from you know, three grandmothers ago. And, you know, my mom, it was one of the first things she taught me. And it's something that I love. But if you just blindly go in and drop a bowl of baked beans in front of people, they're kind of be like, you know, what? You know, so I think you have to find a way. How do you tie that story in so that then it means more to them, you know? Well, that's exactly it. And I, you know, baked beans, it take a lot longer than biscuits, but biscuits are, are one of those things for me. And when I was living in New York, I would go up to people. If they came up to me like, Carla, how are you? I'm like, hey, how are you doing? Do you know how to make biscuits? And if they said no, I'm like, oh, hey, can I come to your house? Can we make biscuits? Because for me, it was teaching somebody how to make a biscuit or teaching them how to appreciate a good biscuit. Because when I was in New York, I had a lot of bad biscuits. I mean, there are there are some good ones, but their version of what a good biscuit was is because it was a New York version. I wanted to give them a Southern version. And without fail, they're like, oh, right? So it's the same way with your baked beans. There's no way that your homemade baked beans with all of those generational knowledge is going to, and no no offense to Bush's baked beans, but they're, they won't hold up to a fresh homemade version. And ours are actually even really different. It's really interesting. It's just sugar, white onion, salt pork, beans, and water. Mm -hmm. There's no molasses. There's no brown sugar. There's no ketchup. There's no mustard. Like all these things that you see in a lot of recipes. Like it's just the style that my family liked, took to, whatever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've kind of kept with that. So it is also a little different on the food end. What's the unlock for biscuits? Like what are you seeing – like why are why are biscuits not good when you have a bad biscuit? Like do you is it a technique thing? Is it an ingredient thing? Do you know when you have a bad biscuit? Like oh why? oh I what know when did, I have a like, bad biscuit. What, what they did wrong, <laughs> in your opinion? Most times um, the dough is overworked. Um, I think uh, people will boast all butter recipes. 
I put a little bit of shortening and that it could be shortening. It could be coconut oil. It could be um, in a pinch. I've made them overseas. It could be just vegetable oil that keeps them soft so that when they, when the biscuits get cold, they don't get hard. They don't become a weapon. I think most times um, the mix is too dry. So the biscuit is really tight. I like a fluffier crumb, crispy on the outside. Um, and so th- that that's probably the biggest thing. When I open up the biscuit, when I take the top and the bottom and I pull them apart, I want to see like crevices and almost cake-like, but you see those layers and it's crunchy, a tender crumb, crunchy on the bottom and the top. And then you see so much steam coming out because there is moisture inside. I want a biscuit right now. Just the way you're describing this. You're, you're in D.C. You're only like an hour away. I'll be over for biscuits. We'll have some. I can bring you some biscuits. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can make you some biscuits in 15 minutes. And the dry biscuit is the worst. Like the biscuits that come out of the oven and you have them, but if you don't eat them in like 15 minutes, you know, you go back for one in like two hours and it's just kind of dry and right. not good. Yeah. I, I know what you're talking about there for sure. I mean, again, no offense to Starbucks, but most people, when they make biscuits, they're like that. I've had a lot of bad biscuits, but even a bad biscuit is okay. It's kind of like pizza in that, in, you know. See, that's opinion. what, that's I, what people I, think. Maybe I, shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe that's sacrilegious. But, you know, like, you give, even if you get close, get me close. I don't want like a horrible biscuit, but yes. a, a, an okay biscuit is still better than like a dry English muffin. Absolutely. It absolutely is better. And so, you know, speaking of, so chefs without restaurants, one of the services, and um, I don't need, I almost don't want to say this. I don't want to call it a service, but what I have done, because I don't want people calling you to call me to tell me to come to their restaurants. I have gone to people's restaurants. I've done two so far to teach them how to make biscuits. I said, you don't even have to mention my name. But when I go in, the first thing I order is their biscuit. And I'm like, okay. Um, One restaurant in particular asked me, it was in Miami, and they asked me to come in and um, help their team make biscuits. And I was like, okay. So I get there and let me have the biscuit. I'm like, oh, God, yeah, I I need to help them make biscuits, right? And it was the chef's name, Chef So-and-So's Biscuits. And I'm like, okay, I need to look out for this chef because I don't want to offend And so I go back and there was this young kid. He's only worked in the restaurant for two months. And not only did he not cook when he got there, he had never worked in a restaurant. So I see him making some biscuits and I see that he is getting ready to put this butter that is on the verge of melting into the flour. Like, ah, okay. So that, that would be the first thing I'm like, dude, stop. Yeah. I'm not even going to let you finish this batch. We are, no, we're starting over. So I showed him one, how to measure. A lot of times people don't know how to measure. Grams are so much easier for a restaurant, obviously to use metric, but at home, I think to aerate the flour, to spoon it into the cup, to level it off, that's the best way to get a a good, perfect cup. And um, I showed him how to measure and then mix in the shortening, you know, completely no lumps of shortening at all because it 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 also creates a weird texture. Great the cold butter. I said, dude, if it's not cold, it's not going to do what you need it to do. And what you need it to do is to steam when it's in the oven. So it lifts like pie crust. So you get those layers. If it's not cold, you know, put it back in the fridge. 
And then to not overwork the dough. And when you put the buttermilk in, you want the dough to be wet. And also that's another thing, the addition of fat. And people will say, oh, if we don't have buttermilk, we can add lemon juice to the milk. No, that's not adding, that's not adding any fat. You can do milk and sour cream, but you can't do milk and lemon juice because it all it adds is an acidity to your milk. It doesn't add any fat. What do you so think you about uh, the low-fat cultured buttermilk versus like the full-fat? Because full not, fat. All pla- not all places have full-fat. It can be kind of hard to find. But yes. recipes don't specify usually when it says but- – it just says buttermilk. Uh, but, you Correct. know, like I know my store has two and I usually go for the full-fat. Right. And, you know, it's kind of – isn't it an oxymoron? It's like low-fat buttermilk. Right. Neither one of those things are low fat by nature. Exactly. Is it low fat margarine milk? Is it low? I mean, what is it? So in that case, then you get the low fat buttermilk and sour cream, full fat cream, and then you mix the two and and it's going to add more fat. And then the dough has to be a little bit wet because you're going to do turns. You know, that's when you fold it in a letter and then you turn the dough and then flour and then you turn it again. And so by the third turn, it should then feel pretty good. But a lot of times you already know that the dough is too dry when you get ready to fold it and it's breaking, you know, uh, and it's not the dough isn't soft enough. And so so that there and then, you know, punching the biscuits out and then um, put it in a square biscuit or a round biscuit. Um, you know, I'm a round biscuit, but I think in restaurants, it makes sense for square. So you don't have to redo the dough. And, you know, you want to make sure that that last biscuit is as nice and soft and fluffy as the first biscuit. So you don't really have all the scraps and the re-rolling and, um, but yeah, and then you bake them and you don't overbake them. And, and the guy whose name was on the biscuits at this restaurant was like, this is the best biscuit I've ever had. And I said, you don't even have to mention my name, but this is what you should be serving if you have biscuits on your menu. And so the guy who asked me to go there, he runs. I said, oh, we have a problem. We have a problem. We're out of Carla's biscuits. I was like, well, that's not a problem. You have the 86 biscuits because you can't serve those other ones. Dude. What are you going to do, right? 86. And that's one of those problems you see in restaurants is, you know, sometimes there's something that doesn't make the cut. It's not up to par. And then, you know, because of circumstances, like you run out, you you serve that thing. I mean, yeah. we've all either done it or been in a place where you've seen that happen. And it's like, that's not doing anyone any good. It's like putting out something that's subpar. It's always <sighs> better to just like 86 that item. I, I'm really sorry. I know you wanted biscuits. We don't have them right now, you know. Exactly. Come back, tomorrow, Come back next when, week, whatever. Yeah. Right. I went to a restaurant that's known for their guacamole and they didn't have good avocados and they served it. And it was hard and terrible. And I'm like, you should have 86 it. Why, why would you leave me with this really bad experience? Avocados are tough. Like that's, mm, I have a couple dishes on my menu where it's like, that's the star of the show. And, you know, and you never know what you're going to get. I've, there right. have been times I've shown, I did an event where I was demoing a dish with avocado and I got there and you can't cut them early to see how they are. I cut them as early as I could when I was on site and they were brown. And I sent sent someone out to the store to try and get me some more. But I also said, while you're there, pick up, I mean, I hate to do it, but like one of those tubs of the fresh mashed avocado, like not guacamole, nothing in it. Right. Because we might have to demo this dish using that because you can't demo with either a rock hard or a brown avocado. 
That's right. You have to, I mean, I think that's the beauty of being a chef. It's about pivoting, switching, getting the job done, but also seeing a solution where most may not see one. And I think most customers are flexible and probably more flexible than we give them credit for. I mean, mm-hmm. now is really weird with supply chain. And I tell all my customers from the start, like, I know we've talked about a menu, what you want. There's a good chance I'm going to get to the store. It's not going to be there. You know, there's been some food items that I haven't seen in a real long time. And you just don't know when they're coming back. And I think most people understand that. What's one of those things? For a while, I couldn't find burrata cheese, which was really weird. Mm. Uh, that was last summer. And I was doing all these salads that were like tomato. I do a tomato peach salad with burrata. Yes. And I just said, you know, fresh mozzarella is delicious too. I don't know why I've gone to the store four times now and they haven't had burrata. Is that like a supply issue? Who knows? But just, you know, I'm going to make it work with a nice, beautiful ball of fresh mozzarella. And, you know, it'll be similar. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you do. So this is kind of a kind of a turn in a different direction, but I wanted to get your take on the food industry in general right now, because I think so much is going on. And, you know, I don't know, what are do you have any thoughts on the food industry in general? Are we headed in the right direction? I feel like sometimes we're making positive strides. And then some days I feel like it's business as usual and more of the same. And I don't know that, you know, and that neither you or I are working in restaurants. So you know, we can't necessarily talk about being in a restaurant, but just, you right. know, what you're seeing in mainstream media is the way the restaurant and food industry is going. You know, it's 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 a complicated situation, I think. I, I think that there are a lot of chefs who are trying to fix the restaurant model because it, it seems to be a little broken. And I was talking to one chef here in D.C. and He's like, why is it, you know, if you have a, a dinner restaurant, if something goes wrong, you have to call somebody because your regular hours are like, I don't know, let's say like three to midnight, 1 a.m. But if something goes wrong, you have to call somebody and it's overtime for them to come because their business hours don't match yours. Right. So then it's double. And so there are some different um, things like that that are happening in the business of restaurants where they don't quite match up. I mean, I think food costs, labor cost, and rent, rent is so high right now. And not to mention ingredients that you can't, you almost can't pass on to the customer because they, you can't have your salad be one price this week and then it goes up 50% next week. That said, I've been to restaurants where they have a surcharge and I am happy to pay it. Because I, I feel for that restaurant and then I am happy with them passing these charges on to me because I know what they are going through. Um, I am not so precious or what's the word? Selfish that I want them to serve me by any means necessary and they lose their shirts. And then, then what happens? That restaurant goes away and then you're mad. Like, what happens to the restaurant? Well, yeah, because you insisted on them not charging you for the things that they had to pay for. Um, I, I also think that one of, the, one of the issues that I see, there are not enough wait staff. So when you get to a restaurant, um, you see all these tables and you're like, why am I waiting? And you're waiting because you can't overwhelm the kitchen by them sitting you, by them seating you, and then you're still waiting at the table, wondering why you haven't been served, and and so I think 
you can look at the restaurant and say it's on the restaurant, but it's also on the diner to understand. So it's a simpatico relationship that if you're one to eat out, you have to understand that the restaurant is trying to do the best that they can do. I think we're seeing a lot of more fast, casual restaurants. I think chefs sort of after the pandemic were like, look, I just want to have fun with my food. So not a lot of fine dining. I mean, you see some of that. I, I don't think we, we see a lot of the tasting menus, which is fine with, by me. I, I, you know, if I eat out, I just want to have fun. I don't want to, I don't want to have an intellectual experience, but that's just me. So I, I think that, um, you see people who are opening restaurants who aren't restaurant tours, but they are business people and they're getting, um, celebrity chefs, but yet they don't understand how a restaurant works. That celebrity chef thinks it's a great opportunity. And then that restaurant ends up failing with the celebrity chef or the chef really bearing the brunt of a failed restaurant when it really wasn't on them. So there's a lot of that. You know, one of the things I've looked at, I never really wanted to have a restaurant. I mean, when I was like 18 and going into culinary school, yes. But then I've seen so many horror stories of just what you're talking about. You know, uh, most chefs aren't the money people. They're the creative people. And you Mm -hmm. need someone who's your business backer. And I think it can be a dangerous scenario, especially if it's not someone you know. You know, it's maybe a little different if you've got family or a business partner who you know. But just to say like, this random person is going to cut me some money and we're going to open this together. I think that starts to be a, a dangerous path potentially, especially when your back's against the wall and you have to do whatever it takes to, uh, you know, keep the money coming into the restaurant. You know, the people who have made it work, I look at, you know, Tiffany Derry, who was on seasons seven and eight of Top Chef and she is incredibly smart and she's been working in restaurants for a really long time and and she is wise beyond her years and she really knows how to do restaurants but even she was burned right um I look at chefs like Michael Simon um you know I, I could name so many and they've done so well but also because they know the business side you almost can't go in only as a creative you really have to know the business side i don't know do you go back to school to learn that like what you know what do what should people do you know myself personal chef like i mm-hmm. went to school for culinary i got a little business degree uh or i got a little business experience on the job but I still don't feel like I was fully ready to take on my own business completely. I, I think it's kind of hard, like figuring out how much business you need to really learn before you open a business, even if it's a small one. Well, I think there's so many classes. I know the James Beard Association, the James Beard Foundation has a class. It's mainly for women, um, women business leaders, WBL. They have a school. There are so many free classes. I would say in your community, in your state, there are classes that you should just take. Go to a community college, take another class, understand um, your P&L for a restaurant. I mean, and, and if anybody who says they, they don't have time, well, then you have time to fail. <laughs> Simple as that. Time to fail. That doesn't sound like a good scenario to be in. <laughs> do you miss cooking? I mean, I know you still do some, but I mean, you're not cooking, cooking like you used to. Do you miss that? Um, I, I do sometimes. I, um, you know, when I was doing this 
uh, chef series. I was in the kitchen cooking. That said, um, I had just, I, I came uh, off the heels of Tom Colicchio and he was on the line and he was in the kitchen and training. I didn't do service. Um, I was, I was more, once service started, I came out to the floor and I talked to people on the, on the floor and at the tables. Um, I do, but you know, I don't think I've ever really talked about this. I, I have this intense fear that was created so many decades ago when I was in restaurants about expediting. And I, I even talked to a friend. I said, I, I feel like I need to do it. I need to just be on the line and just decide to fail badly and just get through it. Not all chefs are good line cooks, I've discovered. You know, I've, I've worn the title of executive chef before, and I've had employees say, like, well, you you should be the best line cook in here. I'm like, I don't do it every day. I mean, that, right. the reality is, is like, going back to knowing some business stuff, like, I very creative in the kitchen. I know quality. I can lead a kitchen. I can run the numbers, but I am not going to be the one best suited. Like when someone calls out a hundred percent, I'm on there, but like, I am not the guy to master that station. It's just mm-hmm. like, you know, when you've got a line cook who's working 40 to 70 hours a week, like banging it out or sous chef, of course they're going to be better. So yeah, I've, I've even had some of that paralysis. Have you ever had that thing where you're like cooking on a line and the tickets come in and you're just like, in your head. <laughs> and uh, the first time it happened to me was like, it was an afternoon party. It was a lunch service for kids and it was all burgers. And it was one of those things where there was like 20 burgers and, you know, it's like a medium rare with Swiss cheese and mushrooms and a rare with bacon. And un- and you just have this tunnel vision and you lose track on the grill of like what the temperatures are. And it was just like deer in headlights. And I looked at sous chef. I was like, I, I need to hop off this line because like, I'm just totally lost. I, I need fresh eyes on this. Yeah, I mean, terrifying. it's 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 a th- it's it's terrifying, and and I've been there, and I've visualized myself I'm like, can I go to the corner and just start rocking? I just can't get through this moment, but I feel like I almost need to go through that. I mean, on the other side of that fear is success, like going through it. But to your point, you have to do it every day. You find a rhythm. There is nothing like that dance. Like when you get it and you know that when you turn, I mean, cause I, I love efficiency. I, I, in my head, I see the process in catering. I was like, yes, uh, you know, we could plate up a dinner like really fast because I could see the steps being on the line is great. But when I, when I'm ex, when you're expediting and you have all the tickets and you're running, like you're seeing everybody, the chaos of that, I, I don't know if I have ADHD, but it is so overwhelming that before I even get started, I'm seeing the chaos and I can't, I can't, I, I can't move through it. If you've never done it for like any of our listeners who've never worked either on either side of that line, it's just, it's so much. I don't, I don't miss it. Like I, there's a lot I enjoy about cooking in places. That's not like the personal chef thing. I don't miss that part at all. So, you know, this is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. One of the questions I've been asking everyone this season is what does it mean to you to be a chef? You know, as so much of the world identifies chef as someone working in a restaurant, you don't work in a restaurant. So what does it mean to you to be a chef? Um, for me, it is, well, you know, it's funny because chef is a manager. They are the head, they are the lead. They have the, they're the ones who almost like the puppeteer in a restaurant. Um, 
when my husband gets offended for me when people call me a cook. I'm like, but a chef is a cook. Sometimes a chef isn't a cook, but a cook is a cook, right? Um, so I think in my world, being a chef is creating menus and creating experiences, which I still do, um, creating recipes that are executed in various places. And it is managing a kitchen on a much smaller level. Um, I, I have been challenged by people who will say, so do you have a restaurant? And I'm like, no. And they're like, so what are you, what are you doing now? I, you know, they want to, they place this value on having a restaurant. And because the layperson doesn't see other jobs where chefs or cooks can be, they sort of poo poo you and devalue you. And, uh, you know, it's an eye roll and, 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 and sometimes I, I feel like I want to educate them and then I'm like, well, why, why, <laughs> why do I have to spend my Some time? Some of that educating? is ego, you know, yes. I'm not saying that you, but like me personally, no, but absolutely. You know, as someone who loves what they do, but I've cooked in retirement communities, which translates to like nursing homes, right? Mm -hmm. So like people say like, oh, what do you do? And you tell them you're a chef. And then at a retirement community that you kind of get this like, ah. It's like, no, you don't understand what I do. And like, I get really excited and want to explain, you know, all the cool things we're doing. But I feel like I've lost them because they just want to hear that I cook at some like fancy pants restaurant. Yeah, because they want to be able to have your food. They want to be able to like to taste your food. But but yes, to that point, I've also run into some chefs who were working in restaurants and I saw them um, later at events and they are now corporate chefs. And almost apologetically, they're like, yeah, I work here now. And I said, so how is that quality time with your family? They're like, oh, it's great. I said, yeah. How about those holidays? They're like, oh, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, this is the other side of things. It's not always at a restaurant where you have this joy and balance of life. And it wasn't until almost like just talking to them that they were like, okay, she's not going to judge me. But again, it is ego because when you go to culinary school, it's all geared toward restaurants. You're, you are told this is where you should be for the most part. I mean, I think, I think now there is, um, you know, research and development, there are recipe testers, there, you know, food stylists, there are all of these other things that people can do. Yeah, that's why I want to bring some attention to them on this show. I mean, I, I already released over 150 episodes, and they're all people who don't work in restaurants. I mean, I've had a couple because they have like a food truck or something interesting, but they're mostly people doing really interesting things, mm -hmm. like not in restaurants. And I love kind of highlighting that and what cool things you could do. And hopefully there's a young person out there somewhere who's like, oh, wow, I never realized that I could work for a, you know, company. Dave Petranzik, who's been on my show, he works for Breville Poly Science and he travels the world teaching like Michelin star chefs how to use, you know, their induction cooktops. Like, yes, how cool, like, how cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. Even making a product, even, you know, coming out and you decide that you want to do pickles and you know, that's your thing. You start at a farmer's market and it gets bigger and then, you know, and then you sell it to a store. You know, there are so many outlets for chefs who don't have restaurants. Well, what's next on the books for Carla Hall? Um, well, you see me using my palette on Halloween Baking Championship and Holiday Baking Championship. Um, but I do have a new show called Chasing Flavor. It'll be on Discovery Plus. And I am looking at 
beloved American dishes, but tracing them back to see all the cultural hands that added to that dish. Because again, a lot of times, you know, we see a dish from, let's say the last 10 years and we're like, oh my gosh, this is new. We're like, well, actually it's not new. And there are about a thousand years that you haven't accounted for that, <laughs> that you know, go into this dish and in all of these different cultures. And so I'm super excited about that. That's really cool. I think we've seen more of that the past few years, more TV shows kind of getting at the roots of, especially here in America, you know, which is a melting pot. And it's so amazing that we have so many foods and food cultures here, but I still don't think people know the history, the origins of, you know, how those ingredients got here, how mm -hmm. they're, you know, traditionally used. So I, I love to see that being kind of highlighted. Yeah. I mean, there's so many stories to tell. I think if we can look at a bunch of, um, cooking shows where you see Italian food or Greek food or um, occasionally soul food, then you can see a number of shows telling you the, the backstory of a dish. I know you love soul food, but do you have other cuisines? Like what are some of your favorite things to eat and cook? I love Indian food. Love. I think Indian food is one of the best ways to learn how to use spices. Um, I love Thai food. I love probably any Mediterranean food, you know, because I love lemons, love lemons. I love acid. So <laughs> I wish we could have really good viable lemon trees here in the DC area. Right? Oh my so gosh. So unfair. So unfair. I was, I was in LA and I was driving down this street and there were all of these lemon trees and I'm like, oh my gosh, can I just like pack those and shake that tree and just take the lemons home? Um, I mean, I, I wish we could. Ugh. We have other delightful things here, though. Yeah, half smokes. <laughs> <laughs> Mumbo sauce. Well, you know, we got our own uh, food heritage here. Do you have anything else you want to share before we get out of here today? Anything we didn't cover? Anything that you like really need to get out there? Well, I, I'm going to say this. It's It's premature. Um, you will probably see me on uh, a home shopping network, um, food and cookware. And, and I've been in the, in the beginning of, which I, I didn't realize how much I loved engineering things. Well, I talked to the engineering, I talked to the, in, the engineers, but I love how things work and how my mind works. It's like, this is a great product, but if you could change the tip to this and move that over, it would be even better. I mean, it is so amazing. I have enjoyed that. And again, that is something else that if you are a chef and you are using products or, you know, equipment, what is the most efficient way to use it? And that, and so you can work with engineers. That's good to know. I have a notebook of actually some ideas of things I would love to get made or tweaked, and I had no idea how to do it, right? So right now, it's just this notebook of ideas of like, okay, one day I'm going to figure out how to get this product like to market. Yeah. I mean, you should go to companies. Um, a lot of times, it's the same companies who make these things, who do product innovation. Yeah, you should do it. So many avenues. Like, I feel like I need to rein it in a little bit. There's like this ADHD part of me that's like all over the place now that it's like, I have the food side, I have the media side. I don't know that I have it in me right now 
at least as well, I'm a team of one to like get a product to market like that. I need to bring on a bigger team. I think that's, and that's one of these things I talk to people all the time. Like, what's the breaking point? Where do you spend the money? I have X dollars. Is it, you know, a virtual assistant? Is it a marketing person? Is it another set of hands to cook? You know, figuring out where your resources are best used, right? Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because I I think that um, I started with a virtual assistant 20 hours a week and she went from 20 to 25, 30 to 40. And now, you know, my assistant actually brings in business for me and she makes a percentage off of that business. And she's a great idea person. I think that when you're putting together a team, realize what your skill sets are and you bring in people to compliment to compliment them. You know, there are no duplicated efforts on my team. I, I then brought in somebody to do my website, social media. Um, I brought eventually after eight years, I brought in somebody to help me with recipe testing and helping me write articles, you know, like, and, and help me write my speeches. So I would, I would do a version of them and she would tweak them. So because again, knowing what my strengths are and then how somebody can support what I do. That's great advice because again, I know a lot of our listeners out there are struggling with this. This is a show that's made up of a lot of uh, foodpreneur, you know, listeners and guests. And this is something we get into all the time. It's just like the burnout is real. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like, how do you prevent the burnout? And the answer is quite often like finding someone to help you out. But I want to say this really quickly. I was I was telling somebody else this in a different um, field. But a lot of times if you need organizers, if you need an assistant, you don't need anybody who understands food. There are a lot of people who have retired early who can organize and, and put things in place. You need that person. Somebody who has another job, maybe, who doesn't need health insurance, who already has that covered. You want that person. A hundred percent. You know, I worked at Ikea for a number of years. And at the time, a lot of my chef friends kind of razzed me because what? They got like the frozen meatballs. But have you seen them as a company? Like they're a global uh-huh. company, right? Like they know marketing. They know human resources. They know people building. like, And that's the stuff that I wanted to pick up is like, how mm-hmm. am I going to become a better chef, a better business owner, a better businessman and doing a three-year stint at a company like that? I still got to cook and do some fun, cool stuff, but I really learned the ins and outs of business, even though it really wasn't always pertaining to food. Like I had to learn how to sell couches, you know, like right. crazy stuff. There is no wasted experience. Every single thing that I did in accounting, I modeled, I was acting, every single thing I still use today. Is there going to be more podcasting in your future? I hope so. I love the medium of voice and storytelling and interviewing. Um, Yes, I have this idea for a show, like taking all of my lessons, but going back and talking to the people that helped me learn those lessons. So getting my lessons through their eyes, you know? Yeah. Like, why didn't you fire me? And then they talk about it. And then why did you fire me? Okay. <laughs> that, could be, that could be hard conversation. You have to be really good at taking constructive criticism, right? I mean, it's done now. So, and I, I am where I am. So I think that it, it would still, the lessons would continue. Yeah. No, I love podcasting too. It's not something I had ever thought I was going to do. And now it's taken up 
such a large portion of kind of like my bandwidth and what I'm working on. And I got some other stuff cooking there. So Carla, if you had to describe yourself as a flavor, what would it be? Ooh. Oh, ah, tooty fruity, fresh and fruity. Okay. I don't know. Um, if, uh, okay. A flavor, you know what? I would describe myself as, I want to say vanilla, but it's not, it's not the vanilla that you know, because there's so many different notes to vanilla. So I'm going to say Madagascar vanilla beans. That's going to be my flavor. That's really awesome. Vanilla. We talked about this on the show because I had um, a couple of guests, but like one was, he runs a chocolate shop, but he talks about vanilla. You know, for so long, we talk about vanilla as being like bland, like, oh, that person's vanilla or whatever in a derogatory way. Or it's just this kind of supporting note. And he's like, no, like he he buys some of the best vanilla beans in the world that are like crazy expensive. Like even the not good ones are crazy expensive. Like it's a luxury item. But for some reason, we've taken that to mean plain, like it's like a base flavor, and then you got to add other stuff to it. So I understand what you're talking about. Like, when you have real good vanilla, and I wasn't a believer, like I used to use cheap imitation vanilla extract. Once you get a vanilla bean, and you put a vanilla bean in like a creme brulee or something, totally changes everything, right? Yeah, I mean, vanilla. So the bean is exotic, yet some people think it's plain. So when I'm at home, I'm pretty much chill. I'm not like all over the place like people think that I am. But then there, there is the complexity of those notes. So yeah, I'm going to say vanilla Madagascar. I love it. Well, where do you want to send people to if, I mean, they can find you everywhere on the internet, but are there any places right now that you want people to check out or anything? On my Instagram, Carla P. Hall, and then my website, CarlaHall.com. I will link all of it up in the show notes. I love watching your Instagrams. I sometimes drop in Instagram lives. So that's a real pleasure there. Well, it's always nice to see when you drop in. So thank you for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for coming on the show. And to all of our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Thanks so much and have a great week. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community is free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.